Please open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 6. Mark 6, we're returning to our study of the Gospel of Mark this week while our pastor is away. And I'm very excited to bring the Word and this account of our Lord with His disciples during another storm and His purposes in working in their lives and teaching them revealing Himself, revealing who He is uh, to those that He is making fishers of men and preparing to do the work that He has for them. Our text this morning is Mark 6, beginning in verse 45 and going down to the end of the chapter. I'm going to go ahead and read that whole text this morning as we begin. Mark 6, beginning at verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them, And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, city, or cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. Are you a disciple of Christ? Are you a follower of Christ? And I want to help you answer that question by pointing us to a couple important markers in the Gospel of Mark as we begin to zero in on this passage this morning. What is a disciple of Christ? In Mark chapter 1, in verses 14 and 15, in the summary of Christ's ministry, After John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. A disciple of Christ is one who has heard the word of God, who has heard the preaching of the kingdom of God, the rule of God through the person of Christ the good news that there is a king and that you must bow to him. And upon hearing the gospel, 
upon understanding the glory of Christ and upon seeing the sinfulness of oneself in light of the the infinite glory of God and the infinite holiness of God turns in repentance to Christ for the forgiveness of sins and turns away from any works of his or her own and puts their trust entirely in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. They believe the good news. They believe the gospel. They believe that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And then in chapter 8, Mark chapter 8, as Jesus is clarifying what it means to follow him, what does a disciple look like? What does a person look like who has turned to Christ, who has repented of their sin and believed the gospel? Well, in John or Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." Someone who is a disciple of Christ is someone who has turned from their sin and repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ who depends on Him for the forgiveness of their sins, for redemption and ransom. And that person is also one who recognizes the authority of Christ, who follows Christ in self-denial and taking up the cross daily to follow Christ, who lives not for this world, but for the one to come, who is not ashamed of Jesus Christ in the adulterous generation that we live in that puts Christ to shame, that mocks those who follow Jesus Christ. This is a disciple of Jesus Christ. Are you a disciple of Christ? And I ask that question as we begin this morning because the passage, as we come back to Mark chapter 6, the passage that we're going to explore today is a passage about Jesus training disciples. Jesus is training his disciples, and he's training those disciples by through seasons of testing. In fact, the theme this morning, I'll go ahead and just introduce that for you if you're taking notes today. The theme of this passage that will unfold is that Christ trains his disciples by seasons of testing. Jesus is with the disciples as He ministers to the crowd, and then He separates the disciples from the crowd, sends them out on the sea. A storm comes. They're torturing themselves all night against the wind. Jesus comes comforts them, causes the storm to cease. And I want to draw your attention to verse 51 in the second part. When Jesus got into the boat with them and the wind ceased, it says, 
they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And that statement, that revelation of the disciples' heart condition helps frame what is taking place in this account. The heart condition of the twelve, when we combine the accounts from Matthew chapter 14, here in Mark and John chapter 6, these were men described of little faith. They were doubting. They did not understand the significance of the feeding of the 5,000. And their hearts were hardened. And yet these are the followers of Christ. They need to grow. They need discipled. They need tested. They need to understand who Christ is. And there, there is a reality for all who are disciples of Christ that we are not of perfect faith. Oh, we come to Christ and He saves us. He saves us because of His perfect work. But as we follow Christ, we find, we find often that our faith wavers. We find often as, as life happens as the billows of opposition rise up that our faith is small we doubt and maybe even we have hardened hearts in fact the writer of hebrews tells us tells the believers in, in hebrews chapter 3 verse 13 you exhort one another while it's called today lest lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin so this is a condition of disciples as pride or faithlessness of sorts creeps in. There's constant growth. There's constant exhortation that needs to happen. As Andrew prayed for us today that we would give attention, as we give attention to the Word of God, that the Word would work in our hearts because we are forgetful. <laughs> And we need the Lord to continue to do His gracious work to train us to follow Him. And times of testing supply what is lacking. Turn over to James chapter 1. I'm taking a little bit more time in the introduction this morning to develop this concept of Disciples needing to be tested because it will frame then what we see happens in the passage before us this morning, James chapter 1 and verse 2, it's a familiar passage. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Why does he say that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing? Because apparently we do lack in something. And so these times of testing are God's, God's measures of discipleship to teach us to trust in Him and supply what is lacking. In 1 Peter chapter 1, just one book over in your Bible, 
1 Peter chapter 1, as Peter describes the glorious salvation that we have as those born again to a living hope in Jesus Christ, in verse 6, he says this, "...in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials." so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation." of your souls. Verse 6, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. We need the testing that comes from the Lord. It's part of His sanctification part of the process of the sanctification of us, of developing a Christ-likeness in our lives, developing our dependence in the Lord. Now, as we go back to our passage in Mark, we need to answer a question. What do you suppose led to the disciples having hardened hearts? What were they struggling with? What caused the struggle? Well, in the previous two accounts that tell us what's happening with the disciples in chapter 6, verses 7 through 13, Christ had sent the disciples out on a mission. And that was a great mission. They went out and they were casting out demons and they were healing. There was a lot happening The Lord was using them in a a public ministry to proclaim His name and to deal with the ravages of sin. And then in verses 30 through 44, the the passage just preceding this one, there was 5,000 people gathered, and they were hungry, and they didn't have food, and Christ miraculously provided bread for all of these people ready-made, and the disciples got to serve ready-made, miraculously created bread by Jesus Christ to thousands and thousands of people. This is incredible. You can, you can kind of sense that there, there's this wave of expectation. And in fact, in John's account... We're told that after the feeding of the 5,000, the crowds were coming and saying, we want you, Jesus, to be king. They wanted him to be the political ruler. And the disciples were getting caught up in the fervor of their version of the Messiah. And they were missing the significance of why Jesus came. They were missing the significance of his mission. And so Mark tells us, and you know, this is one of those, one of the, one of the evidences of the inspiration of the scripture when we have these statements about what is going on inside of people. And Mark tells us what is going on inside of the disciples 
They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. They didn't understand the significance of what Jesus did. The fact that he didn't do that to create popularity and become a fighting ruler to overthrow Rome. This was a demonstration of his deity. This was the God-man. This was the king on earth. The kingdom of God is near in the person of Christ. But their hearts were hardened. Their, their perspective had been distorted. Their expectations for what they wanted Christ were were deviating from his purposes. And so the Lord is going to disciple. He is going to disciple his disciples. And he's going to do that through a time of testing. Now, this principle of the Lord dealing with his people, humbling them, helping them to understand His plan, helping them to understand what it means to trust in Him is something that we find all through redemptive history. One writer gives four examples in these four statements. God can send us a problem we can't handle to expose our helplessness. For example, Naaman, who had leprosy. He couldn't handle that. God can give us a command we won't obey to expose our self-centeredness. Jonah was given a command by God. He didn't obey it because he was self-centered. God can arrange an outcome that we can't control to expose our sinfulness. David tried to control the outcome of his sin, but when God chose to open the book and bring conviction, David couldn't control the outcome. And God can show us a God that we can't comprehend to expose our finiteness. Think of Job. Oh God, what's happening? Why is this happening? Job, the question is not why, the question is who? Look at me. I am the God that you cannot comprehend. Trust in me. The reality is that we are helpless, we're self-centered, we're sinful, we're finite. We have problems. And we need God to continue to work to expose our fleshliness, to expose our lack of trust, to expose our doubting, and to expose the tendencies of our heart to be hardened against Him and His purposes. And this is what takes place in the disciples. Jesus is dealing with the onset of spiritual pride in the hearts of his disciples. And there's another important element here that he is doing that to prepare them for further instruction. This is critical. Jesus is bringing them in, into this storm and, and testing them and revealing their heart and, and showing himself to them in a unique way to prepare them for further instruction, further instruction that is going to be difficult to grasp. Turn over to John chapter 6. 
John chapter 6. I just, I, I want you to just see how this plays out in another gospel in the sequence of events. In John chapter 6, the beginning of the chapter is the record of the feeding of the 5,000, followed immediately by the same account that we're looking at in Mark chapter 6. But then in verses 22 on, Jesus is teaching the crowd. He teaches the crowd, and he teaches them about being the bread of life. And what happens as Jesus teaches the crowd? What happens as he presents this difficult teaching? Well, look down at verse 60. John 6, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, and when he's talking about disciples, he's talking about a larger group, not just the the twelve. Jesus said, verse 61, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you are to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives Life, the flesh is no help help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew who from, from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. But Jesus turns to the twelve and says, Do you want to go away? Simon answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we've believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The twelve had been through the storm. Jesus had discipled the twelve. And so when it came time for more teaching, for more instruction, do you think Peter comprehended all that Jesus said in, in that discourse? I doubt it. But Peter didn't say, Lord, we're going to follow you because we understood that. No, Peter said, Lord, we're going to follow you because we have nowhere else to go. You have the words of eternal life. You're the Son of God. And whether we understand or not, we're not leaving. We believe. We believe in you. And we're clinging to you. We've been discipled. And so as we come back to Mark 6 again, but just setting the context of this passage to understand what is happening as Jesus deals with his disciples. Jesus isolates his disciples from the public ministry. He made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to bring a season of testing into their life, testing that would prepare them for teaching that they were about to receive. This is a passage that shows us how much the Lord cares for His own. 
that he understands our frailty, that he understands the weakness of our, of our spiritual condition, and, and he cares for that like no one else can. Jesus trains disciples, yes, by teaching, and also by seasons of testing. We're blessed with so many young believers in our, in our assembly and you know this is an important this is an important truth to grasp sometimes as we come to Christ there's there's great joy and exuberance which is appropriate because of all that God has done we recognize that he saved us from our sins we have new life and then as we continue to follow Christ, these times of testing come. We, we think, well, what happened? It can shake, it can shake our faith. Am, am I truly a Christian? I mean, isn't, isn't following Christ supposed to, to, to be a good life? What, what's going on here? No, those times of testing, it's not a, an evidence that you're not in Christ. Often it's just the opposite. It's the Lord dealing with His own, strengthening you, discipling you, preparing you to see Him face to face, preparing you for His return. Well, we've established our theme, Christ trains disciples by seasons of testing, and let's see this worked out now in the passage. Look at verses 45 through 47. After the feeding of the 5,000, Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was on the sea, and he was alone on the land. I want us to see, first of all, this morning that Christ ordains seasons of testing. Christ ordains seasons of testing. In other words, seasons of testing, opposition, trial, adversity, whatever you want to call it, they're, they're not just happenstance. At the very beginning of the passage, Mark says that Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. The word made is a word that communicates a charge. You get into the boat. It's an order. Leave the crowds, disciples, and get into the boat. And when we recognize what's taking place, according to John's gospel, that there was a, a frenzy that Jesus would become the political ruler and leader of the people, what we find is that this is, this is important and, and intentional. Jesus is protecting his disciples and, and moving them away from the frenzy of the crowd. He's ordering them to get into the boat, knowing what is going to take place. What happens in the passage following happens as the disciples obey Christ's direction and command. So how is it that Jesus ordains seasons of testing? Well, what we find here is that Jesus often ordains seasons of testing through His commands. Through His commands. He ordered them into the boat. He ordered them away from the crowds and the public ministry, and He put them in a position 
in the sea where they were going to be tested. Again, there's a lesson for us here. When you think of the commands that were given as believers, as followers of Christ, often following Christ, following His commands, distinguishes you from the world. It distinguishes you from the culture. It it puts you in a position where you stand out, where you stand apart, and where often you become a, a target of opposition. And you're thinking, well, I'm obeying Christ. Paul says that all who live godly will indeed suffer persecution. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Peter tells those to whom he writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And he goes on from that point and and through the rest of the epistle and, and gives many directions to believers in Christ that are different from the way that the world would live. And he says, this is, this is part of, this is the part of declaring the excellencies of him who called you. You live differently. You live distinctly. But, but when he comes to chapter four, he says, now don't, don't be surprised at the sufferings. Don't be surprised at the opposition. Often it's as we obey the commands of Christ that those times of testing come. We're tested. Lord, you said to go here. You said to live this way. I'm following you. It's hard. That's okay. You're following me. And Christ will use those commands to distinguish us from the crowd, to call us apart to himself, to give us new opportunities to trust in him alone in the midst of what seems like insurmountable odds. Christ ordains those seasons of testing. The disciples obeyed him And there was separation from Christ as he was on the mountain praying. And we'll come back to that in a moment. And they are in the sea. And as they're following Christ's orders, what happens? Verse 48, he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Christ ordains seasons of testing, but when those seasons of testing come, however they come, whatever the circumstances, whatever the opposition, whatever the trial, whatever the hardship, whatever the heartbreak, Christ is still present. Christ is still in control. He oversees seasons of testing. Christ ordained seasons of testing. Now in verse 48, we're seeing that Christ oversees 
seasons of testing. Again, look at the progression. Verse 45, he made his disciples get into the boat. Now verse 46, he saw that they were making headway painfully. He ordered them get into the boat. Now as they're in the boat, in the midst of the sea, and this wind comes up and keeps them from going to their intended destination, Jesus is seeing that they are making headway painfully, that they are being tortured in the opposition of the wind, the waves, the sea, and following the Lord's command. He sees it. He's overseeing the season of testing. Oh, there's so much in this passage as we think about what is taking place as Mark unfolds this account to us. Look at verse 47 again. Oh, at the, actually, at the end of verse 46, Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. He's on the mountain. He's on the land. In the other accounts, we find that the boat is miles away from the land. The boat is in the midst of a storm. Jesus is on land. The boat is miles out in the sea in the midst of the storm. Jesus is praying, and yet he also sees his disciples in the midst of the storm, torturing against the storm. Jesus is recorded, is seen in this passage to be both human and divine. We see both natures. In his humanity, Christ is alone with the Father in fellowship with him, praying on the mountain, seeking fellowship with the Father in the midst of the of perhaps even the temptation to become the king. It's, it's a similar temptation to what the devil brought before Christ when he showed him the, the, the kingdoms of the world. And now the crowds want him to be the king of, of Israel and, and to be the political leader. And he's separated himself and he's on the mountain praying. And yet, in his deity, he is aware of what is taking place in another location. He saw... He saw his disciples being tortured by the waves in the boat. He's overseeing the whole thing. He never leaves us or forsakes us. He's with us. He knows what's happening. And that that storm, that storm came up in the evening, likely in the early evening, soon after dark. But but notice that when Jesus comes walking on the sea, He did so in the fourth watch of the night. Now, when's the fourth watch? The fourth watch is between 3 and 6 a.m. So for most of the night, the disciples had been on the sea in what should have been a maybe an hour or two voyage across the sea. They had been there all night being tortured by the wind, yet the whole time Christ knew what was going on. He was overseeing the whole trial. And at the time He determined, He came walking on the sea. As Christ oversees seasons of testing, it's important that we, we understand 
that his awareness of what's happening, his awareness of the intensity of the testing that he brings into our life, whatever it might be, it doesn't necessitate his immediate intervention. Lord, I don't know how much I can endure. The, the winds, the winds are high. I can't move forward. The waves are overwhelming me. I, I might drown. Where are you? Oh, he's, he's watching. He's overseeing. But he's accomplishing his purpose. It, it doesn't necessitate his immediate intervention, but just because there's no immediate intervention doesn't mean that Jesus isn't aware. No, he's fully aware. And he's fully in control. That struggle lasts for several hours. As, as you follow Christ... Remember that because something is hard does not mean that it's wrong. So often as we follow Christ, as we do what's right, it is hard and it is a struggle and it's part of Christ forming us, discipling us, teaching us to trust in Him. In fact, in James, in James' directions to us, when he says be steadfast, the idea, the idea there is don't, don't try to find a, a detour from the trial when God has put you under it. Let steadfastness have its complete work. Let God do the work. Let Him do what He intends to do according to His timetable. Let Him teach you what you need to learn. Christ oversees the season of testing. He sees them. He sees what's taking place. Remember that back in chapter 1 when Jesus called the disciples, He told them, He told them, I will make you to become fishers of men. You remember that? And the implication was that they were not yet fishers of men, were they? The implication was that Jesus was going to disciple them. He was going to train them so that they would become fishers of men. And when we look at what takes place in the book of Acts, as the church is established, what the disciples do as fishers of men, as followers of Christ, as proclaimers of the gospel, what we find is that, that they had to take strong stands for the truth and for the gospel that depended on an absolute reliance on the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about Peter, who was in the boat. And Mark tells us he actually got out of the boat and walked in the water. But think about Peter in, in Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira come and they're pretending to be something that they're not. And Peter says, you're lying to the Holy Spirit. He had to be trusting Christ. He had to trust in the Lord Jesus. He had to trust in the ruler of the storm and the one who is building his church. Or think about chapter 8 when when Simon or Simeon was, was baptized and, and found that he shouldn't have been baptized, 
And Peter said, your gold perish with you. All through the Acts, those are just two examples, but time and time again as, as Christ used His disciples to build the church, we find that these episodes of training, of, of Christ developing and teaching them to make them become fishers of men were, were critical in their development of trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who they were proclaiming and the one for whom ultimately they would be willing to die. Christ is overseeing the training process to make fishers of men. He knows exactly how long that storm needs to last. He knows exactly how long those men need to be tortured at the oars as they fight against the the wind that they cannot control and the sea that they cannot control. Jesus is preparing them for the hard things ahead. And how appropriate is the training? Hey, we've just cast out demons. We've been healing people. We just fed 5,000 people. This is great. And then Jesus, with a breath, reminds them, yeah, but you can't cross the sea apart from me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He leaves them on the sea until the first watch of the night. And then he comes. Our text in verse 48 says he meant to pass them by. The, the idea there is that he desired, he intended to pass them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and, terrified, and were terrified. As Christ now comes and intervenes, his presence, his presence does not immediately minister comfort. When was the last time that you saw somebody walking on the water in the middle of a storm? Or you're not even able probably to see clearly, perhaps as the dawn is starting to, to come. I mean, this is, this is extraordinary. This is not an illusion. Jesus is walking on the water and he, and he comes to them in the middle of the storm after they're exhausted from, from rowing against the storm all night. And, and then his presence is not an immediate ministry of comfort. They're, they're terrified. The unfamiliar situation terrifies the disciples as they see him and see what they think is an, is an apparition. But there's something happening here. Jesus is revealing Himself to them in a very important way. When the passage says that Jesus walked by them or desired to pass them by, Mark is actually using language that comes from the Old Testament and describes the self-revelation of God in multiple places. I want us to just turn to one of those. Turn to Job chapter 9. Job chapter 9. A couple of the other places are in Exodus when God reveals Himself to Moses. He passes by. But we'll just look at this one passage in Job chapter 9. Job chapter 9 is a description of God and His magnificence. 
And in verse 8, as Job is extolling who God is, he says this, Speaking of God, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Then, verse 11, Behold, He passes by me, and I see Him not. He moves on, and I do not perceive Him. What's being described? Well, here's God who tramples on the waves of the sea, and He passes by. As one commentator says, Jesus is walking where only God can walk. He's walking on the waves of the sea. And in so doing, He is revealing to His disciples His deity. This is the God-man. This is a self-revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. He intended to pass by them so that they would see Him. And although they're initially terrified, which who wouldn't be terrified to see a man walking on the water? Matthew tells us at the end of the passage when he got into the boat, what did they do? They bowed down and they worshiped him. This is God. This is God with us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus put them out in the sea. He, he put them in a place where they were going to be tried and, and tormented by the, the waves and the sea, by powers that, there, that were out of their control. And he exposed their weakness and, and he even exposed their lack of faith so that he could minister truth of who he was and truth of his kindness and care for his people. They saw him and were terrified. But what we find next in the second part of verse 50 and on through verse 52, Jesus Christ has ordained the season of testing. Christ oversees the season of testing. He's completely in control of everything. He sees them from afar. When he chooses, he walks out on the lake in the middle of the storm, a storm that they can't even move their boat against. Jesus walks out on the lake to the boat and passes them by. He's in control. He's overseeing the whole thing. But Christ ultimately overcomes all obstacles. Again, verse 50, they're terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Christ overcomes all obstacles. What, is, what do we see Christ overcoming in this passage? Well, remember, He made the disciples get into the boat. He ordained the season of testing. He saw them in the boat. He oversaw the whole thing. And now, now as, as He comes to them, as His presence is made known and they're terrified, the text says immediately he spoke to them. And the first thing that we see Christ overcoming is he brings comfort to the fearful. 
These men have been tested. They've been tried all night long. Christ appears and they're terrified. They don't understand what is happening. They haven't understand, understood yet who he is. And, and they should have understand the text, understood the text tells us. The feeding of the 5,000 should have caused them to understand. This is God with you. This is God among you. But they, they did not yet understand. And so when they saw Christ, they were afraid. They were terrified. They were out of their minds with fear. And Jesus, speaks. Take courage. It is I. And, and the Greek, I, I, love, I love how this sounds. It's kind of cool. He says, ego me. I am. I myself am. He declares very similar what Christ, what God declared to Moses. I am God. Disciples, you're in the midst of this storm. You're afraid because you see me walking on the water in the midst of this trial when you're exhausted and tormented and don't know how you're going to survive. Take heart. God is here. God is with you. I am here. Do not be afraid. You couldn't see me, but I saw you. And now I'm revealing my presence to you. Take heart. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. The comfort is found in the name. I am. I am God. I am God with you. But not only that, he got into the boat with them and and notice, you know, this is one of those things when, when you think about it, Here's Jesus walking on the storm. He's apparently some distance from the boat because, again, in Matthew's account, Peter gets out and starts to walk. And the howling wind and the waves and all the chaos of a storm, Jesus, Jesus speaks and his voice just cuts right through the storm. They hear him, but the storm isn't settled The storm is still raging, and Jesus says, take heart, it's I. Don't be afraid. Nothing's changed yet, except that Christ has revealed himself. Take heart, it is I. The storm is still raging. But verse 51, he got into the boat with them. The storm is still raging as he gets into the boat. But he gets in the boat and the wind ceased immediately as I hear the rain starting here. The wind ceased immediately. And not only that, in, in John's gospel, we're told that they were also immediately at their destination. Christ controls the storms. He comforts the fearful He controls the storms. There was not a moment during that storm that the disciples were out of his care or that that storm was out of his control. And at his will, the wind ceased. And at his will, the boat was at its destination. But oh, more than that, we've already established this from the beginning. 
but Christ is caring for the spiritually vulnerable. Again, at the end of the the section here, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. The, The whole point of what is taking place here is that Jesus knows the condition of his disciples, and so he ordained the testing. He oversaw the testing, and when the moment was right, he, he overcame all the obstacles, accomplishing his purpose. Jesus is caring for the spiritual condition of his disciples. He's showing us how he deals with with a spiritually unperceptive state of those he loves. He brings often adversity beyond your strength and reveals himself in a manner that, that causes you to fear him, but it's mercy and grace. How awful would it be if he left us in a state of, of unbelief and of hardened hearts? No, he, he deals with that. He reveals our pride. He reveals our doubting. He reveals our lack of faith and comforts us and directs us to trust in him and prepares us for what is yet to come. He overcomes all obstacles. Well, one final point here this morning. You know, the, these passages are so rich. We could stay here till lunchtime. I don't know. I haven't looked at the clock. I don't know what. Maybe it is. Oh, well. All right. You all have been very patient. What we find in this passage is another truth Christ obeys the Father. And all that's taking place, Christ is obeying the Father. He obeys the Father in His ministry by dismissing the crowds and not following their desire to become king. He obeys the Father out of close fellowship with the Father as we see Him going to the mountain to pray. Jesus going to the mountain to pray. And this is somewhere I want to take a long time, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to make a point. If Jesus needed extended time with his father, if the perfect man needed extended time with his father in prayer, then how much do we need extended time with the father in prayer? If we're going to walk in obedience to Christ, if we're going to follow the will of God, if we're going to glorify God in whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, how much more do we need to be in prayer? Seeking our Father in quiet, away from the crowds, away from our phones, looking to Jesus. He obeys the Father by making fishers of men, of His disciples, and He obeys the Father by dealing with the effects of sin. What we find in verses 53 through 56 is they come to the other side. This is on the, they're on the south side or I'm sorry, on the, on the northwest side of the lake of, of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, they moor to the shore, they get out, and people recognize him, and they run about the whole region, and they're bringing sick people on their beds, wherever he is, and wherever he comes, in villages, cities, or countryside, they're, they're bringing the sick. And everyone who touches him 
And you can imagine what those crowds would have been like. Everyone who touches him was healed. That's after he had been with the multitudes and fed the 5,000. After a night at sea, he's still obeying the Father. He's still serving those around him. In chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says this about himself. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ came to serve. And that's exactly what he does as the boat comes to Gennesaret. He serves those who are in need. His calling is to obey the Father. His calling is to express His divine sonship as a servant rather than as a freedom fighter against Rome. But it's not arbitrary service. It's service that is flowing out of perfect fellowship with the Father. As time of fellowship with the Father, He's obeying the Father. He's accomplishing all that the Father required of Him. And that service, that perfect service, is critical for the second part of what Jesus came to do. He came, he came to give himself as a ransom for many. He came to save. And in the perfection of his service, in the perfection of his obedience to the Father, he became the sacrifice, the perfect, sinless sacrifice for our sins. It's more than an example, far more than an example of, of righteous living. It is the fulfillment of righteousness for all He came to save. He is the ransom for our sin. And not only that, what we see Christ doing when He makes the disciples get into the boat, when, when He's praying, when He sees them in the boat, when He speaks to them, every word that He says, every action that He does, every step that He took, every interaction with those around Him, it's the expression of the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ that is yours in Christ. His obedience is imputed to those who are His. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We're declared righteous because of His righteousness. We're declared innocent because of the debt that He paid. Christ perfectly obeyed the Father in all of His interactions. And, and so... And so when God reveals to us the hardened state of our heart, when we go through those seasons of doubting and, and of little faith, what we find is that where we have had hardened hearts, Christ remained in perfect submission and fellowship with the Father, and it's on the basis of His righteousness that God deals with us. And so when Christ disciples us through those seasons of testing, when he reveals our fleshliness, when he reveals our sinfulness, we keep running back to the Savior. We keep running back to Christ. Where we've been selfish, instead of selfless servants, Christ fulfilled all righteousness. 
in his selfless service unto death. His righteousness is complete. He obeyed the Father. And again, we know what the disciples learned through all of this. They got it. Lord, to whom shall we go? You, you have the words of eternal life. We're clinging to You. Post-cross, Paul writes this to believers in the book of Colossians. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Christ appeared on the, on the lake, but there's coming a day that He's going to appear in the sky, and we'll go with Him forever, for eternity. And so discipleship by testing leads followers of Christ to cling to Him alone for salvation and sanctification. So, as Peter says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In Matthew, the disciples fell down and worshiped. And we will worship Christ for all eternity when He comes. Praise God for the times of testing that He brings in our lives to prepare us for that day. May we honor Him and love Him for what He is doing and will do for His glory. Father, we thank You this morning for our Savior. We thank You for the Gospel. We thank You for the record of Jesus Christ. We thank You that salvation is in Christ alone. And oh Lord, how we love You today, how we thank You for the way that You work in our lives to carry out Your glorious purposes. And we pray that as we go into this week, as we go into the places that You call us to serve You, to be a light in a dark world, to minister in our homes, in our workplaces, to witness for Christ. Lord, may we be strengthened in Christ our Savior. May we rejoice in His glorious work and in the anticipation of His return. In His name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.